Katie. It's a privilege to uh, be here, to be uh, speaking to you this morning. Um, thanks for your prayers for me this week as I was in Washington. I uh, had a really great time spending uh, with Mark celebrating his 15th anniversary as pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It was a great celebration. And uh, it was a really, really joyful time to just see old faces, to see new people, and just to be reminded again of how much uh, we should be thankful for what God is doing in the church, uh, really in the United States, in this process of reformation that is taking place. And churches are becoming more and more healthy. And God has really used our brother Mark uh, in significant ways, and we should really thank God for that. I'm reminded of uh, how much I was uh, formed and helped during my time there. Uh, and so thanks for praying for me, but I'm happy to be home as well. If you have your Bibles, grab them, because we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. Uh, and uh, if you don't have your Bibles, then I guess I'm going to assume that you have that text memorized this morning. All right. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here this morning, gathered as your body to worship you. Thank you for the the songs of praise that we have just uttered from our lips. We sing them with great joy. We are a happy people today because we have been set free. And it is to that end that we want to glorify your name even now in this service, even now as this uh, time of preaching begins. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come. I pray that you would do what sermons can't do, that you would do what only you can do through your, through your spirit and through the, uh, the miraculous working of God, the divine enablement to understand your word, to, uh, for it to penetrate to the heart and the soul, to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. And Lord, give us the comfort of the gospel. I pray for every single person who is gathered here from the oldest to the youngest, that we would be gripped by the power and the promises in God's word. We would all be laid bare. We would all receive not only the exhortation that comes from your word, but the great comfort and the hope that is here offered us from your word. Lord, please bless this time. Let it be used for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want you to picture for a moment this scene. I want you to picture a convict who is on death row. He is awaiting death. He's awaiting execution. And he is sitting there in his cell and he is simply marking the hours until his time of certain execution. When he will pay the ultimate debt for his crime, his heinous crime, his sin. And he is guilty. There is no doubt of his complicity. He is absolutely guilty and he knows it. Uh, He may attempt to fill his thoughts with things that would distract him from this reality. Uh, He may attempt to do normal things. He may function. He may eat. He may read magazines in his cell. He may shave. He may brush his teeth. He may go on and do the normal mundane things in the prison only to momentarily escape the reality that faces him that he longs to just sleep even to get away from the gravity of his situation. But there's always this nagging pull 
in the pit of his stomach that it's only a matter of time, even days, before he will meet his last day. And so he continues like this, this, this agony, this mental anguish, day after day, month after month. He continues in this way. And what's more is actually an unrelenting sense of guilt before God. There's almost an inward panic that this man has from knowing this fact that not only is he guilty, but God, God is displeased with him to the extent that he even finds himself at the place where he is almost willing to say it would have been better for me had I never been born. You see, because he knows that he is guilty. Well, if human beings have sinned, and they have, and if they are responsible for those sins, and they are, then they are guilty before God. They're guilty. Let me personalize this for us this morning. We are guilty before God. We have done wrong by our own fault, and so we ourselves are legally responsible to bear the just penalty of our wrongdoing. But isn't all this talk about hell, about God's judgment, about, about God's anger, about God's wrath, about the fury that is against us, about this condemnation, isn't all this really, I mean, isn't this rather an, kind of an antiquated message? I mean, isn't this something that, you know, the Puritans talked about and it was a good message, but, you know, it's kind of grown, uh, it's, it's, it's passe. It's, it's not in vogue anymore, to be sure. But really, I mean, hasn't it really met its match? I mean, aren't we now, haven't we finally grown out of this, this prudish instinct to insist on the seriousness of sin, on the necessity of Christ's death? to hold people responsible for their actions, to warn them of divine judgment to come, to urge them to repent and turn to Christ. I mean, isn't this just fear-mongering? Doesn't this just lead people to a false sense of guilt and a low self-esteem in their life? If you talk about condemnation, if you talk about God's wrath against their sin... Or, or could guilt be a reality, legal guilt be a reality for some of us in this room this morning before God? You see, the notion of false guilt, I mean, I was thinking about this this week, the, the very notion of false guilt, this, this idea of, of feeling bad about some evil that you have not done, you know, you feel bad about something really that you haven't done, this notion of false guilt, if that's true, then there must also be a notion of false innocence. You know what false innocence is? False innocence is the opposite. That's feeling good even though you have done something evil. So if we want to talk about false guilt, maybe we should talk about false innocence this morning and ask ourselves some penetrating questions. Maybe we'll start here. Do you really have any reason to feel innocent before God this morning? I mean, more fundamentally, what makes a person innocent to begin with? And, and how can I know personally whether or not I am innocent 
or guilty before God? Well, these pressing questions and more, Paul is writing about in the book of Romans. And this morning we find ourselves in the later section of Paul's letter to Romans, where he is talking about the newness of life that we experience in Christ. That Christ has freed us from such guilt and condemnation in our life. And it's interesting to me that as Paul is speaking in Romans, and he's talking about this human struggle that we have with sin and this guilt that is pressing upon us, and the reality of being freed from condemnation, that at the very center of Paul's thinking, the very center of his thoughts, is the death of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. Substitution is the heart of Paul's gospel. Jesus substituting himself for us. Jesus stepping in the way for us to incur our punishment. That, that is the heart of Paul's message. And that's what Paul is talking about in the opening verses of chapter 8. And that's where we're going to be this morning. The opening verses of chapter 8. I want to read with you Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. And I've asked that we put the, uh, the verse on the screen so that you can see that this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, then you can just simply look at the screen and you can read the text from the screen. This is what God's Word says to us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might fully Be met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Now, it's clear from the very last verse, I'm speaking of verse four, that God wants us to have transformed lives. You can see that it's very clear in the text in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So there's a shift. There is a change from living a life according to the sinful nature to living a life in the Spirit. So there's a transformation that takes place. And really, Paul has been talking about this all the way back into chapter 6 of Romans. In fact, if, if you really want to see what, what happens in the book of Romans, we have to start really, and, and Pastor Sam has been teaching on this, so hopefully we're beginning to understand this, but... We need to see that Paul is addressing the issue of salvation in a a very broad way. So from the very beginning, in chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the need for salvation. Chapters 1 through 3, really in Romans, are describing the need that we have for salvation. Uh, Chapters 3 through 5, then, Paul is discussing the way of salvation through Christ. So 1 through 3, the need. 3 through 5, the way of salvation. And then when we get to chapter 6, Paul turns to the new life that we have in Christ after salvation. You see the flow of Paul's thinking here? So the need of salvation, the way of salvation, and then the new life that we have in Christ after salvation, chapter 6. And what Paul has been doing is he's been making clear to us 
that our identification with Christ means that the old self is gone and the new self has come. The old man has gone away. The new man has come. We've been crucified with Christ. So, So it is no longer sin that is our master, but we are slaves to God. God is our master. We're no longer slaves to sin. And it's true that he says that the law alone in the opening chapters of Romans could never bring about this freedom. Indeed, our own flesh rejects the law. It rejects the law and we are under the curse of Adam. But now, but now we are in Christ. The curse has been lifted and in Christ we have been redeemed. So we have been released from bondage to the law. We've been released from bondage to sin and death. So that now Paul says in chapter 7, we're moving through the book to get to 8. In chapter 7 verse 6, now Paul says... We serve in the new way of the Spirit. So now we find ourselves in chapter 8, 1 through 4, and we learn how this transformation takes place. And that's where I want to go with you this morning. I want to unpack Paul's argument for you in Romans 8, 1 through 4. And I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about this because I want us to ask the question this morning. If you are here, has this transformation taken place? You say, well... I I, I know what you're talking about. I understand this. I've grown up in church my whole life. This is a message that I know. It's the gospel. But, But I want you to assume with me this morning that this is the first time that you are listening to the gospel. And I want you to ask the question of yourself this morning. Has this transformation taken place in my life? Now, what I want to do is I want to show you the flow of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4. Because when I read this text... Uh, I was confused in that there it was difficult sentence structure. Um, and, and as I was reading this, I was trying to wrap my mind around exactly what is Paul saying? How is he arguing? And so what I thought to do was put it on the screen so that you can see it in no unclear terms how Paul is arguing in this text. Okay? So I asked if our brother would put this on the screen. This is Paul's... Outline. This is his argument. In verse 1, what Paul is doing is he's establishing his thesis. Paul is saying in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. That's his thesis. That's the opening statement of Paul's argument. Then in verse 2, he begins to answer the question, why? Why is there no condemnation in Christ? There's no condemnation in Christ because the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's his argument. Why is there no condemnation? Because the Spirit has done something. The Spirit of life has set me free. Then what Paul does is he asks the question, how? question really is, how then does this happen? How did this setting free take place? And really, Paul gives a negative answer and he gives a positive answer. The negative answer that he gives is that it's not through the law. And what he's essentially arguing for is this. If it was through the law, it was powerless. The law itself was powerless, so it could not be through the law because sinful man is not able in his unregenerate state to keep the law. You see how Paul's arguing? So he can't. He, his heart is unregenerate. He cannot keep the law. Therefore, the law is powerless. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with man's unregenerate heart. He cannot keep the law. So then, how does this setting free happen? It happens only through Christ. By God 
sending his son in the likeness of human flesh. Happens through the incarnation of Christ. It happens through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Okay? It happens by Jesus taking our place. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's laying out a thesis. There's no condemnation. He's saying why there's no condemnation. Because the spirit of life has set us free. And then he answers the question, how did that happen? Not through the law, only through Christ. So that's the flow of how Paul is arguing here. I wanted you to see that so that it becomes clearer to you in your thinking. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at this morning is no condemnation. We're going to unpack this thesis. I don't know if anybody here has been arrested or convicted of anything, any crimes, or you've been taken off to jail, or you have been punished in some way by the law. Um, I think some of us come here this morning and we say, well, look, you know, I mean, I've, I've done some bad things. You know, I've done some bad things. Maybe I've done a little bit of jail time. We, I'm sure there's, there's folks in here who have spent some time in the jail. Probably we don't have anybody here that's been uh, in the prison much. Maybe we have somebody who's been in prison. Maybe not for long. I know we at least know people who have been in prison. But maybe you're thinking this morning, okay, isn't this all a bit extreme? I mean, really? Uh, look, I, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a great person. You know, I'm not like Mother Teresa. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not, I mean, this, this whole thing about no con- this condemnation and guilty before God and using this opening illustration about this guy in the prison who's just waiting for that day when he's going to be executed. I mean, isn't this whole thing a bit extreme? Friends, don't assume that God views your sin as lightly as you do. Do not assume that this morning. God is serious about sin. That is not a laughing matter. So, if anything, we need to err on the side of understanding what God thinks about our sin, rather than what we think about our sin this morning. So, when we talk about being condemned, we talk about condemnation. You know, we need to unpack this a little bit. What does that mean that we are condemned? The Oxford Dictionary actually says this. It says, condemnation means to find someone guilty of a criminal act or wrong. It is a sentence... Uh, that someone is given, they are given a sentence to a particular punishment, and the punishment of that sentence usually is death. The, the Greek lexicon Laonidas says this, condemnation is to judge someone as definitely guilty and thus subject to punishment. Okay, so right, at, right from the very get-go this morning, what we are talking about is punishment really that's resulting in death. We're talking about the most serious form of guilt that results not just in a slap on the wrist, not just in a, hey, let's take a time out and, and let's try to be a better person. We're talking about serious condemnation. We're talking about God saying, this is, I take this with utmost importance. This is your guilt before me. I am a holy God. And so we are talking about the state of being lost, the state of being estranged from God. Your relationship with God is broken. You do not have a relationship with God that is meaningful. It is broken. It has been hindered by sin. 
So you are in a state of being considered not only estranged from God, not only lost, but actually legally guilty before God. So here's God in the law court. Here's God. We're using legal analogies and he's the judge and he is looking at you and he is saying guilty, 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 definitely guilty. Nothing else but guilt. You are guilty before God. That is your state of condemnation. So when this text says there is therefore now no condemnation, we need to understand what Paul is saying here. See, he is talking about justification. He is talking about a pronouncement of no condemnation. This, this is a pronouncement then of no condemnation would be the removal then of this guilt. Do you, do you see what's going on here? So Paul is saying there is no condemnation. So if condemnation is guilt and guilt that is punishable by death ultimately, so no condemnation then is the removal of that guilt Okay, and 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 that guilty verdict. So we think about justification, this pronouncement of no condemnation. We are considered not guilty. Now look at verse 4. When you combine this, no condemnation with verse 4, we understand justification more clearly. Because verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So not only here are we talking about the verdict of not guilty, But we're talking about righteousness, the righteous requirements of the law being met in us. So this is a state of being considered innocent and not guilty. And at the same time, being considered righteous. This is justification. So at the very beginning, we haven't even got past Romans 8, 1. And Paul is already unpacking the glory of justification, even in this one phrase, no condemnation. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I don't come to church very often. I've been here. I've been to church a little bit in the last year or so. Why are all these people so excited? They seem to be raising their hands in worship and everybody's singing and everybody's so happy. This is why we're so happy. We have been pronounced innocent by God. We have been told by God that we are not guilty. There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but the righteous requirement of the law has been met in us. So this is an act of God and not man from the very beginning. It is a divine decision to acquit the guilty, to give all the benefits that come with being children of God to us who are hell-deserving sinners. It is based on this transaction that, that we have a new standing with God. The death of Jesus Christ in our place. But in order to appreciate this, friends, we need to understand that we have spent. I mean, is this not true? We have spent our entire lives for ourselves. We we do. We spend our life. It's it's all about me. It's all about looking out for number one. I mean, we have a hard enough time in our marriages. And we're committed to our spouse. So so and the reason we have a hard time is because of selfishness. We're still looking out for number one. So all the more, if we're having a hard time in marriage, we're so narcissistic as a culture. It's just all about us. And so if we're going to appreciate this, we need to understand that this is true. We have sinned against God. And because God is just 
and holy and righteous. He is committed to punish us. He is committed to that. He's committed to punish us for our sins. And this will mean final condemnation. Jesus spoke about the wrath of God. Uh, even the wrath of God. And even now, friends, the wrath of God that is. This is a reality. Do we realize this? The wrath of God hanging over some here, even in this room this morning, who have rejected God. Do you realize this is why this is such good news? Okay, because now he says we can know for certain that there's no condemnation. Now, he says, we can know that there's no condemnation in Christ. And the now is referencing the fact that the old age has passed. And that the ages have changed and that Christ's death on the cross was for us. So that the mystery, remember how Paul talks about in Ephesians, the mystery hidden in ages past as Paul says elsewhere, has been revealed in Christ, who is our substitute. So the charges against us have been dropped because Jesus Christ has been condemned for us in our place as a substitute. All of us who are in Christ know that our penalty has been totally done away with because it has already been fully paid in the death of Jesus. So the penalty of sin no longer haunts us because Christ has taken it and paid for it fully. This is why this is good news. And notice what the text says. Notice that this penalty has been taken for whom? It says this. Jesus, it says Jesus has justified us. We read here. All those who are in. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? What does that mean? Well the assumption here is that if you are in Christ. Then there are some who are outside of Christ. Right? Isn't that the assumption? Isn't that a fair assumption? That there must be some inside and outside. So Paul is explicitly saying, he actually explicitly says, excuse me, in Ephesians 2.12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. That's what he said. So, so this is clear teaching from Scripture. There's a time that you were separated. There are some who are in Christ, some who are outside of Christ. So being in Christ then means all of God's promises and all of our hopes are rolled up together in Christ. What we hope for, what God promises, they all come together in Christ. We are indwelt with His Spirit. We live for the praise of His name. This is something of what it means to be in Christ. Not every sinner is justified. Not every sinner is considered not guilty. So the death of Christ does not turn away the wrath of God from all people. Let me say that again. The 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 Death of Christ does not turn away the wrath of God from all people. It's only when we are united to Christ by faith that that wrath of God is averted. That that wrath of God is not placed on us, but it is placed on His Son. So being in Christ then means being so connected to Jesus by faith that Jesus takes the wrath of God for you so that you do not have to experience that. That is the heart of our gospel. Jesus taking our punishment. Now, to my non-Christian friend, what does this mean for you this morning? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, what does this mean for you? Well, for you, it means that you are outside of Christ. And if you are outside of Christ, you know how we should read this verse? There is therefore now only condemnation for you outside of Christ Jesus. 
do you realize the importance of what I'm saying? I, friends, I love you. I want you to realize that if this is true, if God is really saying that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, then to be outside of Christ Jesus means that there is condemnation for you. I mean, among other things, friends, this is what it means to be a non-Christian. Uh, this is what it means. If you are not in Christ, you are exposed. You are held liable before God's law court. And sin and, and, and God's condemnation awaits you. In fact, even now, even now, it's as if your sins are a prayer to God saying to God, condemn me, punish me, do away with me. Your sin, your life, you don't even have to say anything to God, but your life itself is saying that to God in a prayer. God, you, I deserve to be condemned by you. I deserve to be punished by you. I deserve to be done away with by you. I wonder if this message is, is, is at all offensive to you. I wonder if it upsets you. Well, friends, if you don't mind me asking, how bad do you think your sins need to get before God will condemn you? The answer most people will get to that is, well, someone whose sins are, are just a bit worse than mine. Sins that are just a bit worse than mine. But friends, God, do not suppose that God is tied to the low standards of your sin and mine. He is perfectly just. He is righteous. And his standards are much higher than you and I think. To my Christian friends who are here, rejoice in this fact. Rejoice in the fact that in Christ we have now no condemnation. Relish that fact. Rejoice in this hope. Friends, for us, we praise God. That's why we come together. Because this verdict has been rendered on our behalf. We are not guilty. We are righteous for Christ's sake. All of our sins are forgiven. All of our guilt has been removed. All of the punishment has been averted. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. If we had no visitors here, I could just read that text for an hour and we would have a great time. Over and over, I could read that text. I could just stand here and lovingly and joyfully just repeat myself. And I think you would be quite happy. There's no condemnation for, this, for those of us in Christ Jesus. Praise God for his kindness to us. Praise God for his goodness to us. So then why is there no condemnation? Paul goes on to argue, verse 2, why there's no condemnation. He says this, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The point here is that we've been set free. We've been set free. It is the spirit of life that is setting us free. Now, in the Old Testament, from creation all the way through the, the prophets, we see the spirit, ruach. We see the spirit who is considered the breath of life. 
from Genesis all the way, and then we get to Ezekiel. Do you remember the prophecy of the dry bones? And life is breathed through the Spirit. So the Spirit is giving life. And then we think of regeneration and the Spirit who produces life in us. So it is the Spirit who gives life. So when we come to Romans 8, what we have here is this text. And the text is saying the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So what are we freed from? We're freed from the law of sin and death. Now, there is some question here whether or not the law here refers to the Mosaic law. Does this refer to the law, basically the law that Moses set down of sin and death? Or does this just refer to a principle of sin that is within us? Is this a principle? Is this a law that is within us? The law of sin and death It's a war. It's the inner struggle, the inner turmoil that we have. Well, either way that you fall out on that issue, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who frees us from our bondage to sin and death. So that's the point of the text. The point of the text is the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. So the point is bondage, and the point is the Spirit setting us free from that bondage to sin and death. So the Bible's describing us as being slaves of sin. Sin is our master, but here it is the Spirit who is the liberating force, who is the one who's liberating us from the law, from the power, from the mastery of sin and death. Non-Christian friends, if you were here this morning, understand that this is not something you can do for yourself. It, it, it is the Spirit who gives you life. You, you cannot remove your condemnation by your morality. You cannot do enough works to remove your guilt before God. God's verdict against you is guilty. And the only way that that guilty verdict can be changed for you is not by going and trying to do lots of good works to show yourself to God that somehow you are have achieved enough righteousness in the standing in, 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 in God's eyes that somehow he will accept you. Do you realize that that is actually offensive to God? Do you, do you know why that's offensive? That's offensive to God because God is saying, I crushed my son so that you could have righteousness in life. God sent his son so that you could have his righteousness and his life. So that when you go and you try to earn God's favor through all of your works and all of your obedience, what you are saying to God is thanks for Jesus, but no thanks. I will take my righteousness, stack it up against Jesus and assume that mine is also good enough. And God is saying, if you reject my son that way, the son that I crushed, my only unique son that I have crushed, if you reject him that way, you will finally be condemned. There, there, you will definitely be condemned if you take that position. So we who are believers and who know the joy of being set free, we, we, we rejoice this morning. If you are here as a believer, then you know the joy of having been set free. The Spirit has set you free from bondage. So this morning, what this is, is this is a meeting of former slaves. Every Sunday, Heritage Baptist Church, this is a meeting of former slaves. We come together here. We have been brought together in this congregation by the liberation of Jesus Christ. That's, that's who we are. We are here liberated in Jesus. And that brings us 
a closeness together, a joy that is indescribable. When we come together and we begin to fellowship in the Spirit, when we begin to fellowship in the bonds, in the love of Christ, we are thinking in these categories. We've been set free. The Spirit has set us free. We, are, we, we have no condemnation in Christ. So I can look at Derek and I can, be, I can be discouraged in my life and yet I can say, Derek, Derek, give me some hope. And Derek looks at me and says, no condemnation, man. No condemnation in Christ. That's what we can do for each other. We, we serve as that source of encouragement in our life, in each other's lives. And that brings us a closeness. Uh, to, Christian friends, remember that it is God who sets you free. This is God's activity. You are wholly dependent on Him from start to finish. We, we just finished a series on humility. And, and, and we should be asking ourselves the question. The, the real question is this. Why has God shown me mercy? Me. Why has He shown me mercy? Why? I love that hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. And you know that last verse of that hymn. Uh, it says, uh, why was I made a guest? Or why was I invited, basically, to the wedding feast? Why? Let that drive you. Let that influence how you live your life. Do not be oblivious to this, because he who has been forgiven much loves much. Do you understand how much you've been forgiven? And, and to my non-Christian friends who are here this morning, understand that we do not think that we're special. We, we, it's the exact opposite. We are really sinful. The only reason why we are joyful this morning is because the Spirit set us free. The Spirit of life has set us free from sin and death, from this bondage. So then finally, Paul answers the question, how? How is there no condemnation? And this is really the crux of the matter for you this morning if you're not a Christian. You need to know this. Because you need to know how you can have no condemnation First thing he does is he says, well, it's not through the law. It's not through the law. Look at verse 3 again. Just read verse 3. It says this, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. So verse 3, what he is saying is that it's not through the law. The law was powerless. It was weakened because of human flesh. That's exactly what the text says. So, so the law from the very get-go was intended to reveal to us our sin. It was intended to lead us to Christ. It was meant to show you that you cannot keep God's standards. Ultimately, on your own strength, in your own flesh. It, it, it was meant to lead you to despair over yourself and over your lack of being able to obey God fully in, in a, such a way that he would accept you on the basis of your obedience alone. So if that's the case, then how messed up is the thinking that when we try to earn God's favor through our morality? I mean, how messed up is that? God is saying here that the law was powerless because of sinful flesh. So if your flesh weakens the law in that sense, in that it cannot earn righteousness for you, then how messed up is it that you're trying to do it anyway? It's impossible. I mean, do you honestly think that when God looks at your life, that you are meeting his standard of perfection? 
Do you, do you honestly think that this morning? The fact is that you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. So presumably, you're just hoping that you have enough, aren't you? You're just hoping that maybe your godliness, your, in quotes, maybe your righteousness, maybe your pursuit of doing good things is just enough that God might look at that and say, well, it's close. It's going to be a close one. I, I think I'll let you in. I mean, is that kind of what you're banking on this morning? Just kind of hoping that maybe somehow God will grade on a curve and say, well, it's not exactly what I was hoping for, but it's good enough. Oh, friends, please do not make that mistake. Please do not make that mistake this morning. Do not be conceived. God will not be mocked. If God thought that lightly of your sin, trust me, he would not have crushed his son. He would not have. But the fact that he went to the extent to crush his son should be enough for us to realize that this business of being accepted with God is way out of our hands. Way out of your morality. Way out of your ability to go to church enough times. To to grow up in a Christian family. I grew up to say, I grew up in Owensboro. My family's been Christians for generations. That's not enough. God crushed his son. What part of that? This needs to be clear to you. Now, I'm not saying anything new here. I mean, even the world agrees with what I'm saying. Let me speak for a minute non-religiously, okay? Imagine for a second that it's Tuesday afternoon, and I've got a pair of jeans on and a T-shirt, and we're going to go to Books A Million. We're going to get in our car. Let's hop in the car. Let's go down to Books A Million. Let's get a latte, and let's walk in there, and let's look around. And when you walk in there, you see this massive bookstore, and what do you see in there? Racks and racks, rows and rows of what kind of books? Self-help. Self-help. Rows and rows and rows of books. Better your finances. Fix your relationships. (laughs) Like that's what we need. More books on fixing your relationships. That has not worked. That has not worked for us. It's just awful. More books. More books than we can read on topic. And here's the amazing thing. They're all contradicting each other. Do it this way. Do it this way. This is the best way. This is the best way. That's a beautiful reality. All these self-help books contradicting each other. Get a better job. Get a better body. Get rich quick. Always like the Oprah books. You know, be whole. (laughs) Become whole. So everyone acknowledges this, you know, and, and we have bought into this idea. We have bought into this idea that, that what I need to make me happy is more of what I already possess. That's what we've bought into. That's asinine. That is crazy thinking. What I need that's finally going to make me happy is more of what I already have. So we have a lovely family, we have a nice car, we have a nice house, we have nice clothes, and we're not happy. So what's going to make us happy? Have more. Have more of what we've already got. And that's the American dream. And that's the American pursuit. And you know what it's done? It has made us miserable. Man, I can remember the first check that I got for $100. It was like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> All right, I can remember that. I can remember the first. You know, you know how many bags of Skittles you can buy for a hundred dollars? 
if you're a thir- if you're a 13 year old, you are fired up about a hundred dollars. I mean, really, that's exciting, and that's an unreal amount of money for a 13 or 14 year old. And then, but here's the thing: is that as you grow older, you become 18, 19, then you get a check for a thousand. Okay, and then it's not Skittles you're interested in. But it's other things, but still, you're excited that check is a lot of money. Then you get older, and pretty soon, the thousand's not much money anymore. And then you have 2,000, and then 5,000, and then 5,000 is not much anymore, and then 100,000. But then 100,000 for some people is not much anymore, so then it's a half a million. I know some of you guys are like, you lost me at 100. <laughs> But seriously, the point is, is that what we are doing is we are chasing and chasing and chasing and we want more of what we've already got. So we don't have enough. We've got to have more of the same. So whatever it is that you're doing this morning to sort of help yourself, to find your self-help method, to get your way into God, to, to fix your life, let me encourage you right now in the presence of God, drop that. Set the books down. Go into Books a Million, get a latte, and read Scripture. Read Scripture, and there you'll find self-help. There you'll find, really, God help, actually. God helping you. That's what, that's what you'll find. You'll find true self-help. And praise God that He does just this for us. And we see this in verse 3. What the law was unable to do, God did. God did. God performed it. God achieved it. We notice first that it is God who condemns sin. So Paul is Paul describes this uh, salvation in really three sort of three tenses in Scripture. I love this. God is saving us from the penalty. Of, he has saved us from the penalty of sin. God is saving us from the power of sin, and God will save us from the very presence of sin. So God is speaking of salvation in a very encompassing fashion. And here we see Paul describing salvation in all three tenses. We see all of these are affected by God and by God alone. God sends his own son. He sends his son in the likeness of human flesh. So here we're answering the question, how does this happen? What happens through God sending his son? When we think about God sending his son, we think about the incarnation. We think about God sending Jesus in the likeness of human flesh... So, so what this is saying is that the Old Testament sacrifices were not enough. The Old Testament sacrifices were not sufficient to condemn sin. So in order for God to condemn sin, he must send his own son. His son must come in the likeness of human flesh. And he must be, be blood and bones. And he must come to identify with us. He must incarnate. And he would come to be like us in all respects except for sin. The virgin-born Jesus had no sinful nature, nor did he commit any sin. But yet he became like us. He became like us. And why did God send his son? Well, look at three. Look at the last part of verse three. It says very clearly, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he came, he sent his son to deal with sin. To deal with sin. Christ was a sin offering. Christ is our substitute. So God has here in view our sin when he sends Jesus. God came to change your purpose for existence. God came. God sent his son to change your ends. To change what you are about. 
to change your purpose in life. God came to deal with your sin, to forgive you of all of your sin, and to give you a pronouncement of no condemnation. Friends, have you shared this message with your family? If you're a Christian, have you shared this message with your coworkers? Do you love this message? Is this the message that really gets you going in the morning? If you have not, then what does it really mean for you to love them? What does it mean to truly love them? This is, this is the greatest message that we know. Do you, do you see how lavishly God has loved us by sending his son? And for my non-Christian friends who are here this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you realize that God made you to know him? That's the reason God made you. He sent his son to pay for your sin. So you must repent and believe in his son. You must trust in Christ and give yourself to God. Oh, friends, I love this text. Just listen to these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Have you been set free this morning? Have you been set free? Has God given you the pronouncement over your life of no condemnation? Has that happened to you? If it has, you have great ample room and reason to praise God this morning to go home and say my marriage isn't doing real well and my parenting isn't going real well but I'll tell you one thing I am I am I am free from condemnation God has saved me and in the power of that salvation in the power of that pronouncement of not guilty of no condemnation go and 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 work as a parent work as a husband work as a wife let that gospel, let that message of no condemnation fuel your obedience and godliness and Godward pursuits. Let it comfort you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you have not been set free, if you are pretty sure that you have not been set free and that that pronouncement of guilt is still over you, this is a great time to take care of that. This is a great day to take care of that. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus' arms are open. Jesus is ready to receive you. Jesus is ready to forgive you of all of your sins. You say, man, I've been pretty bad. I've done some pretty rough things. Well, that's true. I bet you have. Paul, the apostle, stood outside of churches basically with a stick, basically killing God's people, and God saved him. That's pretty wild stuff. So, it, and I think one of the reasons why that account is in Scripture of Paul persecuting and killing Christians and the wildness of his life is to, is to, is to give you this comfort and this hope this morning. 
God can save him, he can save me. He can save you this morning. You can have no guilt and no condemnation. Friends, embrace Jesus. Lay down your sins. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And he will set you free. The spirit of life will set you free. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the thoughts that we have considered this morning. We pray that your spirit would now work. You would send forth your spirit, spirit of righteousness, the spirit of life to convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. And that you would do that great work of salvation, offering the forgiveness of sins to any who are here gathered, who are outside of Christ. We pray that some would come to Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are here this morning and just want to say, and you want to deal with some of these issues, um, there will be uh, one of our pastors, uh, Pastor Ted, my dad, will be there. and He'll be happy to talk with you. There will be other pastors in the back, um, and uh, we'd love to talk with you more about these things.